Section 27 of How the Other Half Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. How the Other Half Lives by Jacob Rees. Chapter 25 How the Case Stands. What then are the bald facts with which we have to deal in New York? 1. That we have a tremendous, ever-swelling crowd of wage-earners which it is our business to house decently. 2. That it is not housed decently. 3. That it must be so housed here for the present and for a long time to come, all schemes of suburban relief being as yet utopian impracticable. 4. That it pays high enough rents to entitle it to be housed as a right. 5. That nothing but our own slothfulness is in the way of so housing it, since the condition of the tenants is in advance of the condition of the houses which they occupy. Report of Tenement House Commission. Six. That the security of the one, no less than of the other half, demands on sanitary, moral, and economic grounds that it be decently housed. Seven. That it will pay to do so as an investment, I mean, and in hard cash. This I shall immediately proceed to prove. 8. That the tenement has come to stay, and must itself be the solution of the problem with which it confronts us. This is the fact from which we cannot get away, however we may deplore it. Doubtless the best would be to get rid of it altogether, but as we cannot, all argument on that score may at this time be dismissed as idle. The practical question is what to do with the tenement. I watched a Mott Street landlord, the owner of a row of barracks that have made no end of trouble for the health authorities for twenty years, solve that question for himself the other day. His way was to give the wretched pile a coat of paint and put a gorgeous tin cornice on with the year 1890 in letters a yard long. From where I stood watching the operation, I looked down upon the same dirty crowds camping on the roof, foremost among them an Italian mother with two stark naked children, who had apparently never made the acquaintance of a wash-tub. That was a landlord's way, and will not get us out of the mire. The flat is another way that does not solve the problem. Rather it extends it. The flat is not a model, though it is a modern tenement. It gets rid of some of the nuisances of the low tenement and of the worst of them, the overcrowding, if it gets rid of them at all, at a cost that takes it at once out of the catalogue of homes for the poor, while imposing some of the evils from which they suffer upon those who ought to escape from them. There are three effective ways of dealing with the tenements in New York. 1. By law. 2. By remodeling and making the most out of the old houses. 3. By building new model tenements. Private enterprise, conscience, to put it in the category of duties where it belongs, must do the lion's share under these last two heads. Of what the law has affected I have spoken already. The drastic measures adopted in Paris, in Glasgow, and in London are not practicable here on anything like as large a scale. Still it can, under strong pressure of public opinion, rid us of the worst plague spots. The Mulberry Street bend will go the way of the five points when all the red tape that binds the hands of municipal effort has been unwound. Prizes were offered in public competition some years ago 
for the best plans of modern tenement houses. It may be that we shall see the day when the building of model tenements will be encouraged by subsidies in the way of a rebate of taxes. Meanwhile, the arrest and summary punishment of landlords or their agents, who persistently violate law and decency, will have a salutary effect. If a few of the wealthy absentee landlords, who are the worst offenders, could be got within the jurisdiction of the city, and by arrest be compelled to employ proper overseers, it would be a proud day for New York. To remedy the overcrowding with which the night inspections of the sanitary police cannot keep step, tenements may eventually have to be licensed, as now the lodging-houses, to hold so many tenants and no more, or the state may have to bring down the rents that cause the crowding, by assuming the right to regulate them as it regulates the fares on the elevated roads. I throw out the suggestion, knowing quite well that it is open to attack. It emanated, originally, from one of the brightest minds that have had to struggle officially with this tenement-house question in the last ten years. In any event, to succeed, reform by law must aim at making it unprofitable to own a bad tenement. At best, it is apt to travel at a snail's pace, while the enemy it pursues is putting the best foot foremost. In this matter of profit, the law ought to have its strongest ally in the landlord himself, though the reverse is the case. This condition of things I believe to rest on a monstrous error. It cannot be that tenement property that is worth preserving at all can continue to yield larger returns if allowed to run down than if properly cared for and kept in good repair. The point must be reached, and soon, where the costs of repairs, necessary with a house full of the lowest, most ignorant tenants, must overbalance the saving of the first few years of neglect, for this class is everywhere the most destructive, as well as the poorest paying. I have the experience of owners, who have found this out to their cost, to back me up in the assertion, even if it were not the statement of a plain business fact that proves itself. I do not include tenement property that is deliberately allowed to fall into decay, because at some future time the ground will be valuable for business or other purposes. There is, unfortunately, enough of that kind in New York, often leasehold property owned by wealthy estates or soulless corporations that oppose all their great influence to the efforts of the law in behalf of their tenants. There is abundant evidence, on the other hand, that it can be made to pay to improve and make the most of the worst tenement property, even in the most wretched locality. The example set by Miss Ellen Collins in her Water Street Houses will always stand as a decisive answer to all doubts on this point. It is quite ten years since she bought three old tenements at the corner of Water and Roosevelt Streets, then as now one of the lowest localities in the city. Since then she has leased three more adjoining her purchase, and so much of Water Street has at all events been purified. Her first effort was to let in the light in the hallways, and with the darkness disappeared, as if by magic the heaps of refuge that used to be piled up beside the sinks. A few of the most refractory tenants disappeared with them, but a very considerable proportion stayed, conforming readily to the new rules, and are there yet. It should here be stated that Miss Collins's tenants are distinctly of the poorest. 
Her purpose was to experiment with this class, and her experiment has been more than satisfactory. Her plan was, as she puts it herself, fair play between tenant and landlord. To this end, the rents were put as low as consistent with the idea of a business investment that must return a reasonable interest to be successful. The houses were thoroughly refitted with proper plumbing. A competent janitor was put in charge to see that the rules were observed by the tenants when Miss Collins herself was not there. Of late years, she has had to give very little time to personal superintendents, and the caretaker told me only the other day that very little was needed. The houses seemed to run themselves in the groove once laid down. Once the reputed haunt of thieves, they have become the most orderly in the neighborhood. Clothes are left hanging on the lines all night with impunity, and the pretty flower beds in the yard where the children not only from the six houses, but of the whole block, play, skip, and swing, are undisturbed. The tenants, by the way, provide the flowers themselves in the spring, and take all the more pride in them because they are their own. The six houses contain forty-five families, and there has never been any need of putting up a bill. As to the income from the property, Miss Collins said to me last August, quote, I have had six and even six and three-quarters percent on the capital investment. On the whole, you may safely say five and a half percent. This I regard as entirely satisfactory. Close quote. It should be added that she has persistently refused to let the corner store, now occupied by a butcher, as a saloon, or her income from it might have been considerably increased. Miss Collins's experience is of value chiefly as showing what can be accomplished with the worst possible material by the sort of personal interest in the poor that alone will meet their real needs. All the charity in the world, scattered with the most lavish hand, will not take its place. Fair play between landlord and tenant is the key, too long mislaid, that unlocks the door to success everywhere as it did for Miss Collins. She has not lacked imitators, whose experience has been akin to her own. The case of Gotham Court has already been cited. On the other hand, instances are not wanting of landlords who have undertaken the task, but have tired of it or sold their property before it had been fully redeemed, with the result that it relapsed into its former bad condition faster than it had improved, and the tenants with it. I am inclined to think that such houses are liable to fall even below the average level. Backsliding in brick and mortar does not greatly differ from similar performances in flesh and blood. Backed by a strong and steady sentiment, such as these pioneers have evinced, that would make it the personal business of wealthy owners with time to spare to look after their tenants, the law would be able, in a very short time, to work a salutary transformation in the worst quarters to the lasting advantage, I am well persuaded, of the landlord no less than the tenant. Unfortunately, it is in this quality of personal effort that the sentiment of interest in the poor, upon which we have to depend, is too often lacking. People who are willing to give money feel that that ought to be enough. It is not. The money thus given is too apt to be wasted along with the sentiment that prompted the gift. Even when it comes to the third of the ways I spoke of as effective in dealing with the tenement house problem, 
the building of model structures, the personal interest in the matter must form a large share of the capital invested if it is to yield full returns. Where that is the case, there is even less doubt about its paying with ordinary business management than in the case of reclaiming the old building, which is like putting life into a defunct newspaper, pretty apt to be uphill work. Model tenement building has not been attempted in New York on anything like as large a scale as in many other great cities, and it is perhaps owing to this, in a measure, that a belief prevails that it cannot succeed here. This is the wrong notion entirely. The various undertakings of that sort that have been made here, under intelligent management, have, as far as I know, all been successful. From the managers of the two best-known experience in model tenement building in the city, the Improved Dwellings Association, and the Tenement House Building Company, I have letters, dated last August, declaring their enterprises eminently successful. There is no reason why their experience should not be conclusive. That the Philadelphia plan is not practicable in New York is not a good reason why our own plan, which is precisely the reverse of our neighbors, should not be. In fact, it is an argument for its success. The very reason why we cannot house our working masses in colleges, as has been done in Philadelphia, viz., that they must live on Manhattan Island, where the land is too costly for small houses, is the best guarantee of the success of the model tenement house properly located and managed. The drift in tenement building, as in everything else, is toward concentration and helps smooth the way. Four families on the floor, twenty in the house, is the rule of today. As the crowds increase, the need of guiding this drift into safe channels becomes more urgent. The larger the scale upon which the model tenement is planned, the more certain the promise of success. The utmost ingenuity cannot build a house for sixteen or twenty families on a lot twenty-five by one hundred feet in the middle of a block like that that shall give them the amount of air and sunlight to be had by the erection of a dozen or twenty houses on a common plan around a central yard. This was the view of the committee that awarded the prizes for the best plan for the conventional tenement ten years ago. It coupled its verdict with the emphatic declaration that, in its view, it was impossible to secure the requirements of physical and moral health within these narrow and arbitrary limits. Houses have been built since on better plans than any the committee saw, but its judgment stands unimpaired. A point, too, that is not to be overlooked is the reduced cost of expert superintendents, the first condition of successful management in the larger buildings. The Improved Dwellings Association put up its block of thirteen houses in East 72nd Street nine years ago. Their cost, estimated at about $240,000 with the land, was increased to 285000 by troubles with the contractor engaged to build them. Thus the association's task did not begin under the happiest auspices. Unexpected expenses came to deplete its treasury. The neighborhood was new and not crowded at the start. No expense was spared, and the benefit of all the best and most recent experience in tenement building was given to the tenants. The families were provided with from two to four rooms, all outer rooms, of course, at rents ranging from $14 per month for the four on the ground floor 
to $6.25 for two rooms on the top floor. Coal lifts, ash chutes, common laundries in the basement, and free baths are features of these buildings that were then new enough to be looked upon with suspicion by the doubting Thomases who predicted disaster. There are rooms in the block for 218 families, and when I looked in recently all but nine of the apartments were let. One of the nine was rented while I was in the building. The superintendent told me that he had little troubles with disorderly tenants, though the buildings shelter all sorts of people. Mr. W. Binyard Cutting, the president of the association, writes to me, quote, By the terms of subscription to the stock before incorporation, dividends were limited to 5% on the stock of the Improved Dwellings Association. These dividends have been paid, 2% each six months, ever since the expiration of the first six months of the building's operation. All surplus has been expended upon the buildings. New and expensive roofs have been put on for the comfort of such tenants as might choose to use them. The buildings have been completely painted inside and out in a manner not contemplated at the outset. An expensive set of fire escapes has been put on at the command of the fire department, and a considerable number of other improvements made I regard the experiment as eminently successful and satisfactory particularly when it is considered that the buildings were the first erected in this city upon anything like a large scale where it was proposed to meet the architectural difficulties that present themselves in the tenement house problem. I have no doubt that the experiment could be tried today with the improved knowledge which has come with time, and a much larger return be shown upon the investment. The results referred to have been attained in spite of the provision which prevents the selling of liquor upon the association's premises. You are aware, of course, how much larger rent can be obtained for a liquor saloon than for an ordinary store. An investment of 5% net upon real estate security, worth more than the principal sum, ought to be considered desirable." The Tenement House Building Company made its experiment in a much more difficult neighborhood, Cherry Street, some six years later. Its houses shelter many Russian Jews, and the difficulty of keeping them in order is correspondingly increased, particularly as there are no ash shoots in the houses. It has been necessary even to shut the children out of the yards upon which the kitchen windows give, lest they be struck by something thrown out by the tenants and killed. It is the Cherry Street style, not easily got rid of. Nevertheless, the houses are well kept. Of the 106 apartments, only four were vacant in August. Professor Edwin R. A. Sligman, the secretary of the company, writes to me, quote, The tenements are now a decided success. Close quote. In the three years since they were built, they have returned an interest of from 5 to 5.5% on the capital invested. The original intention of making the tenants profit-sharers on a plan of rent insurance under which all earnings above 4% would be put to the credit of the tenants has not yet been carried out. A scheme of dividends to tenants on a somewhat similar plan has been carried out by a Brooklyn builder, Mr. A. T. White, who has devoted a life of beneficent activity to tenement building and whose experience though it has been altogether across the East River, I regard as justly applying to New York as well. 
He so regards it himself. Discussing the cost of building, he says, there is not the slightest reason to doubt that the financial result of a similar undertaking in any tenement house district of the New York City would be equally good. High cost of land is no detriment, provided the value is made by the pressure of people seeking residence there. Rents in New York City bear a higher ratio to Brooklyn rents than would the cost of land and building in the one city to that in the other. Close quote. The assertion that Brooklyn furnishes a better class of tenants than the tenement districts in New York would not be worth discussing seriously, even if Mr. White did not meet it himself with the statement that the proportion of day laborers and sewing women in his houses is greater than in any of the London model tenements, showing that they reach the humblest classes. Mr. White has built homes for 500 poor families since he began his work, and has made it pay well enough to allow good tenants a share in the profits, averaging nearly one month's rent out of the twelve, as a premium upon promptness and order. The plan of his last tenements, reproduced on page 292, may be justly regarded as the beau ideal of the model tenement for a great city like New York. It embodies all the good features of Sir Sidney Waterlow's London plan with improvements suggested by the builder's own experience. Its chief merit is that it gathers 300 real homes, not simply 300 families, under one roof. Three tenants, it will be seen, use each entrance hall. Of the rest of the 300 they may never know, rarely see one. Each has his private front door. The common hall, with all that it stands for, has disappeared. The fireproof stairs are outside the house, a perfect fire escape. Each tenant has his own scullery and ash flue. There are no air shafts, for they are not needed. Every room, under the admirable arrangement of the plan, looks out either upon the street or the yard that is nothing less than a great park with a playground set apart for the children, where they may dig in the sand to their heart's content. Weekly concerts are given in the park by a brass band. The drying of clothes is done on the roof, where racks are fitted for the purpose. The outside stairways end in turrets that give the buildings a very smart appearance. Mr. White never has any trouble with his tenants, though he gathers in the poorest, nor do his tenements have anything of the institution character that occasionally attaches to the ventures of this sort to their damage. They are like a big village of contented people, who live in peace with one another, because they have elbow-room even under one big roof. Enough has been said to show that model tenements can be built successfully and made to pay in New York, if the owner will be content with the five or six percent he does not even dream of when investing his funds in governments at three or four. It is true that in the latter case he has only to cut off his coupons and cash them, but the extra trouble of looking after his tenement properly, that is, the condition of highest and lasting success, is the penalty extracted for the sins of our fathers that shall be visited upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. We shall indeed be well off if it stops there. I fear there is too much reason to believe that our own inequities must be added to transmit the curse still further. And yet, such is the leavening influence of a good deed in that dreary desert of sin and suffering, that the erection of a single good tenement 
has the power to change, gradually but surely, the character of a whole bad block. It sets up a standard to which the neighborhood must rise, if it cannot succeed in dragging it down to its own low level. And so this task, too, has come to an end. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. I have aimed to tell the truth as I saw it. If this book shall have borne ever so feeble a hand in garnering a harvest of justice, it has served its purpose. While I was writing these lines I went down to the sea where thousands from the city were enjoying their summer rest. The ocean slumbered under a cloudless sky. Gentle waves washed lazily over the white sand, where children fled before them with screams of laughter. Standing there and watching their play, I was told that during the fierce storms of winter it happened that this sea, now so calm, rose in rage and beat down, broke over the bluff, sweeping all before it. No barrier built by human hands had power to stay it then. The sea of a mighty population, held in galling fetters, heaves uneasily in the tenements. Once already our city, to which have come the duties and responsibilities of metropolitan greatness before it was able to fairly measure its task, has felt the swell of its resistless flood. If it rise once more, no human power may avail to check it. The gap between the classes, in which it surges unseen, unsuspected by the thoughtless, is widening every day. No tardy enactment of law, no political expedient can close it. Against all other dangers our system of government may offer defense and shelter against this knot. I know of but one bridge that will carry us over safe, a bridge founded upon justice and built of human hearts. I believe that the danger of such conditions, as are fast growing up around us, is greater for the very freedom which they mock. The words of the poet, with whose lines I prefaced this book, are truer today, have far greater meaning to us than when they were penned forty years ago. Think ye that building shall endure, which shelters the noble and crushes the poor. End of section 27 Recording by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.